At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, It becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of presenting Lauren Hubbard to the show today. Lauren is called the Millennial Progressive Voice, running for California's 22nd Congressional District. And his district is, comp- is comprised of Fresno and Tulare counties. And he's running against someone who I really want to see lose in next year, Devin Nunes. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But let's talk about Lauren first. Lauren was born in Central Valley, California, the son of a single Black working class mother who was an admitting clerk for a local hospital and a union representative in Bakersfield. Lauren's mom struggled to raise two children amid the skyrocketing costs of housing, transportation, and healthcare. His mother worked 10 to 12 hour days and the family required food stamps to survive. Unfortunately, Lauren's mom struggled with chronic high blood pressure and other health problems her entire life. And without consistent access to healthcare, she died at the age of 50. From this experience, Lauren saw firsthand the stark inequities in our nation's broken healthcare system and painful disparities and health outcomes for Blacks, Brown, and low-income families. Lauren's mom instilled in him a strong sense of determination and taught him to fight for what's right and for what he believes in, including the power of education. Lauren was the first member of his family to attend and graduate from a four-year university. He met his wife at Fresno State, where he earned his degree in political science. At the Fresno County Department of Social Services, Lauren connected low-income people and families to community-based resources and government assistance programs like CaliFresh and MediCal. Lauren currently works as an operations manager at the California Department of Water Resources, leading frontline conservation efforts, supporting family farms and combating droughts. He's here today because he's running for Congress, and I'm so happy to have Lauren on the show. It's a great pleasure. I welcome Lauren to the show. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, really excited to be here. And uh Excited for some questions that we're going to get into today, because I think they're really, really important uh, topics that that really need to be discussed. You know, one of the things I was going to say when I looked at your background, I really connect to you because your mom sounds like she was a hero and she worked so hard to help you and your sister. And I think for what she's done for you and where you're headed, you're paying back that gift she gave you by running for elected office. And for that, I I, I just pay homage to you. And thank you for that. That she's, you know, she's like one of these folks that you hear about all the time that do the, or that you don't hear about all the time. They really do the hard work that keeps our nation running, but you never hear about them in the newspaper. She was a big inspiration to me and, and uh, my sister and I are successful now because uh, she didn't let us fail. And um, I do feel like I have to pay that back to her. So let's. You already are. In my opinion, okay? I'm very spiritual. So for me, I, I got goosebumps just now and I know she's with you. You're going to feel her presence every day you run for this and in, even beyond when you get it. God willing, I'm praying you get it. So that's my opinion. Looking at your information, I want to ask you, 
Why are you running to unseat Devin Nunes? Oh, that's a good question. So I'm running because I really, you know, I, I've come to the realization that I can't afford not to. Uh, that my political identity and my social identity are really woven together and that it's politicians uh, like Devin Nunes, who my entire life have decided um, how much pollution is acceptable in the air that I breathe and my children breathe or the water that we drink and how much money to invest in educating our in children and how much money to invest to invest in healthcare. And I think that it's time that someone who has these shared experiences with others that live in our district and our country can better represent us than someone who is removed from those hardships that we face. Why is Devin Nunes a national embarrassment? Trust me. <laughs> I kind of laugh when I ask that question, but I, I still want to ask it. You know, for me, I, Devin Nunes is a national embarrassment because he continuously indulges and entertains these easily disproven uh, conspiracy theories. Instead of representing us, his constituents of this district, he decides he's going to sue them. Um, he's right now suing a fake cow satire account on Twitter for $250 million. And everything that he does that he's against, that he's not for, he claims it's socialism and that it's the boogeyman. And that a large number of his supporters and constituents themselves are dependent on these social programs like Medicare, like Social Security. So to me, it's disingenuous. He's just a clown and it's not he's not really running to make a difference in anybody's life. It's just a vanity exercise for him. What horrified me is during the Trump term, just seeing him run to the White House. Oh. He's supposed to be an elected official part of Congress and he's running to see Trump. And when I saw those scenes during the investigation with the Russia investigation, when he ran there and just a different, it's gangs, it's political theater. It's, it's It horrifies me. It's, I'm it's, sitting there watching. I get horrified. It is games. You know, the Olympics is coming up. Like these people, these athletes have to run uh, super fast to make, to get a medal. Devin's little run to the white house got him a medal. <laughs> and it's just like, yes. you know, we are living here now and we don't have water. There's communities in, in our district that literally cannot turn on their faucet. They're buying gallons of water at the grocery store to flush their toilets and bathe their kids. How do you and do that? Yet he's running over to the White House for stuff. It's just, come on. It's shocking and horrifying to me. We know that he's a national embarrassment based on his actions, but I had asked that anyway. How would you change things for the Valley on day one of taking office as the 22nd district's new congressman? I think day one, first and foremost, would be to hold a town hall and let folks know that I'm I'm an open person. Our first priority to me as a representative is to actually represent the people that live in our district, uh, both the ones that voted for me and the ones that didn't. I think it's important to listen and have input uh, from folks and then be held accountable. I know for myself, when I'm looking at a representative to support that I don't want a, a politician because politicians to me are, are liars. So I, <laughs> they say one thing and then don't explain their position the next. So uh, to me, I don't expect to, to agree with a politician who's going to represent me 100% of the time. Uh, I know that there's going to be times where uh, I want something and they're going to be against it. But if they're willing to take the time to listen to my input and explain their their votes, even if I don't like it, I can at least respect it. And so that's one of the things to start out being very open, which is different than we have now. Devin Nunes hasn't had a town hall to listen to his constituents in over 12 years. That's from day one to set the pace that we are open. We're going to listen to the people in the community. Then we're going to do our best to support the issues that they care about and the times where we differ that I'm going to set a clear distinction on why my votes are the way they are. I think that that's extremely valid. I think having that town hall will be a great way to reconnect with your, with your constituents right away and start from, from scratch, right at the beginning. You're like, I'm here for you. It doesn't matter what, if I'm a D or an R, I'm here for you. I'm here for this district. That's what I get from what you're saying. Yeah, because so many folks here now are, are disenfranchised. We have a representative who just does what he wants to do willy-nilly um, and isn't really accountable to the people that are here. What's your position on Medicare for all? Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I am a 
big supporter of a single payer Medicare for all system. And it's not just because of it being to me, I'm looking at healthcare as a human right. You know, we talked about my, this, my mom's story at the beginning of this interview and for her to pass away because she couldn't afford prescriptions is one thing I think that is a travesty for the most, the wealthiest country in the history of the world uh, to have citizens that live that way. Uh, so for me, healthcare, I, I, I look at it as a fundamental right, a human right. But what I'm going and finding out with folks in our district is that they may not share that sentiment. There's a lot of conservative folks in our area. What we do connect on is that help Medicare for all, that single payer system as an economic value, as an economic right, because of the savings that it brings in. I talk to a lot of business owners that have healthcare as their payroll cost. And tell me you're paying $500,000 now on health insurance for your employees. Imagine if you didn't have that cost. You could turn around and invest that into increasing your employee paychecks and to increasing benefits for them, investing it into your own bit, back into your business. And that's one of the things that I think is resonating with folks across the political divide. Is, is It's a unifying thing, this Medicare for all people are recognizing that, hey, our government should be guaranteeing us the right to healthcare. Definitely. And that's that's the hardest part about the healthcare debate is the soaring costs and trying to create a system that can fit for everyone. It's like you don't have one size fits all for healthcare in our country. And we need that. It, everyone needs to have healthcare. I had cancer three years ago. If I didn't have healthcare, I probably would have been dead. And it was early detection that got my stuff and my kidney cancer detected. And for that, I am internally indebted to my doctors and healthcare professionals I worked with. But in terms of health insurance, I, I couldn't imagine doing that without health insurance or doing it without adequate guidance, you know, help from resources that you need. And, and, th and that was terrifying for me. So seeing that firsthand and seeing it and experiencing it on a, on a direct level, I can't imagine in our country having families go through that and not have insurance. Yeah, you know, we're just, you know, we're still in it, but we're just coming out of this global pandemic and we've seen what what not having healthcare and the lack of healthcare has cost us. You know, my wife's a registered nurse and the mental toll on our our nursing and uh, staff and doctors having to see people die in such record numbers is going to take its toll on the profession and I hope that that people do realize and they're getting vaccinated now, please. <laughs> Yes, please get back to um, just we we've we've seen the cost of, of healthcare in in terms of dollars and in terms of lives, and I think that when it comes to to healthcare in particular, it, it is a recognition of of market failure. Like we're not talking about you know healthcare affects everyone. Uh, we're not talking about a system where I can go to a hospital. Um, let's say I break my arm. I can't just go to the hospital down the street and say, hey, how much are you going to cost to fix my arm? Oh, that's too much. Let me go to the hospital across town. How much are you going to cost to fix my arm? That's not how how it's done. We can't look at healthcare like we can with uh, Amazon, where we could just buy the cheapest one. Or gas prices. <laughs> or gas prices, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's something that is is that we recognize in a capitalist system. There's, there's certain things such as market failure. And providing healthcare to folks in the way that we are doing it is a market failure. That's a good point you raise. I was just thinking about that because I know I live here in Florida and you know your health insurance you get, it's usually one, one, one carrier, one insurance company that monopolizes that area. And I'm sure that they have that done for a reason like that. And I think they need to break those monopolies and allow government resources to help people. We should have that, I think. We need that. It's imperative. Yeah. Once you peel back the layers of the onion yes. of healthcare and you find out that the costs are almost made up and they, these insurance companies just really kind of negotiate these prices with uh, health providers just to say, hey, we got, we, we're going to get a discount and we're going to give you all these people to, as far as coverage is, is a little bit of a, a protection racketeering to me <laughs> if I look at it in layman's terms. Imagine $10 for an aspirin all the time <laughs> when you're at the hospital and you pay 10 bucks for an aspirin if you stay there overnight and they charge you for that. I'm just using that analogy, but the exorbitant yeah, cost of like an IV bag costs like literally cents to make and charge you a hundred dollars for it. 
uh, when my uh, daughter was born in the hospital, that skin to skin contact between her and her mother was a charge for that. Um, cost $32 for my wife to touch her kid. It's, How do you put a price on that? I mean, this is a little ridiculous. But you can if you're in the health system, in our current system, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how that goes. How do you think we can make childcare and family leave more affordable? I think when it comes to childcare and, and family leave more affordable, you really need to look at partnering up labor and these family groups and getting those together. I, I believe that the answer is, is looking at the status quo and recognizing mm-hmm. it's not working for us. And how other countries can have paid family leave and look at the models that are set forth other places and improve it. I think one of the unique things about America is that we take little bits and pieces from all over the the world and we make it fit us and we make it better. Uh, pizza in New York and Chicago <laughs> are, well, I won't say that it's way better than the world, than Italy, but you know. <laughs> world known. Um, I think we need to look at what true family values are. If we're going to be a country that says we pride ourselves on family values, I think that's one of the things we need to look at. And honestly, the biggest roadblock, because we talk about a lot about bipartisanship between Republicans and Democrats on issues, and we want to see that work, but we don't have enough focus on these policies that have bipartisan support, that have majority support from from Americans that don't get enacted. And I think one of the reasons uh, it doesn't when it, in regards to paid family leave is really the greed of, of ownership that looks at folks, their employees, not as people, but as uh, exploitive uh, for-profit necessity. Absolutely. And I, I, I agree with you on that. I think it's, you gotta, you gotta take it and you gotta innovate. We're a country of innovation. And we've got to innovate everything in our country in order for it to, to be something that we'll be proud of, including family values, family values of inclus- inclusion, respect, love. Those could be family values we could push. They are. And I'm really happy that Joe Biden has included an expanse of, of pre-education into uh, uh, social infrastructure uh, of this infrastructure package that's getting passed, that's working its way through Congress. Because I believe the benefits of having such a system, not only are we providing child care to families so that uh, the reality, uh, both uh, parents in a two-parent household, we need both incomes increasingly. So not only are we freeing up folks to, to work, uh, but the education that comes from pre-K education, uh, that investment in our, our children, uh, pay dividends uh, statistics have shown us that folks that are involved in pre-K education when they're young um, have b- better learning outcomes. They tend to graduate from college and go on to get advanced degrees. And it all starts at that root when they're in that pre-K stage. That's the formative years when they begin for education. So I can see where it's so important to get them to be able to do that so that they have exposure to all those things already. For sure. Absolutely. What do you consider quality education for all? Um, when it comes to quality education for all, I believe when it comes to, to that, uh, that topic, quality education is a holistic education. Um, so it's, it's more than teaching to just an exam. I think we should focus our children's whole self, the social, emotional, physical, and cognitive development of our children. I think we need to provide every child with, with pathways and, and capabilities, is probably a better word to say it, that they will need to be socially and economically productive members of society. I want to ask you this. Can you explain the mantra, knowledge is power, and why it's important to you? So for knowledge is power, <laughs> that's one of the things... Uh, that my mom would say to me every day, uh, dropping us off at the bus stop, my sister and I, she would say, I love you, learn all you can, knowledge is power. And for the longest time, I did not know what that meant. I didn't understand. It was like, okay, mom, thanks. <laughs> but as, I, as I've as i gotten older, and I say the same thing to my kids, dropping them off at school now, 
is education, not only formative education in the classroom, but education in life um, opens doors and, and gives you pathways um, to social mobility. Um, you know, for, for me, education was the way that I could um, provide for my family so that I could buy a house so that I could, you know, be able to run for office. That was the, the source uh, of power for me. Um, for other people, folks in my family, my father-in-law, his, his background is in uh, mechanic. So working with his hands. So it's not necessarily uh, textbook knowledge, but just that knowledge of, of the business aspects of running a business and building a car, he was able to turn that into uh, power for himself uh, and building a life. And now he's you know, making $130,000, $140,000 a year with just a high school diploma. Um, so I, I think we need to, to kind of have a focus on, on giving kids uh, a base education for, in textbooks and history and math and science but also that you can be anything that you want to be and it doesn't have to, a test is not gonna determine who you are, that you could be anything you want to be and to work at what the tools, the tools you have available. I recently had a, a guest on, uh, Sonia Lewis, who talked about inclusivity and anti-racism and we and she also talked about critical race theory she gave a good explanation of it and i know if you put on fox news for five seconds you'll hear them go critical race theory critical race theory depends on what time of day right i want to ask you what's your view on critical race theory and why are the republicans so opposed to it? Uh, when it comes to critical race theory considering the fact that it is a college course <laughs> uh, that folks are talking about and they're so afraid of, of what's happening in the classroom my my take on critical race theory is that it's the latest uh, culture war item to be brought up because these folks have no solutions to the real crisis that faces us, that we're working with. If you look at history, history is not good or bad. It's just facts. And it does not matter if you like it, dislike it. This is what happened. And having a having our kids learn what happened in history with told with this, with, with, with history, my grandma would always say those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So we want to make sure that our kids are learning the correct history and moving forward so that we don't repeat the mistakes in the past. So to me, critical race theory is just this latest distraction that the conservative media has drummed up to obfuscate from the clear lack of policy initiatives and plans on their side. I'm going to ask you this question because it's something I, I feel very strongly about. How do you think, let's say, God willing, you take over in January 2023 is when you'd get actually sworn in. What would you do as a member of Congress to address the systemic racism inherent in our system, all parts of our system, not just law enforcement, education, et cetera, et cetera? One of the things I do in my professional capacity at the uh, Water Quality Control Board is I am our, our office's uh, racial equity chair through the Central Valley. And in that capacity, we've taken a lot of steps to learn the history of, of, of institutional racism in California and throughout the rest uh, of the country. When it comes to stopping systemic racism, I think it's very important to incorporate allies into, into the system. So it's not just enough for us to recognize that Japanese internment was wrong. We have to remedy that wrong. And that came in the form of reparations. I think as a congressman, we're, we're talking about historic systemic racism and the wealth that slaves in this country have have built for it, um, not only slaves, but even as recently 
as the 1970s when it comes to housing discrimination. In order to remedy that, I think we need to look at reparations is, is, would be my solution. In terms of reparations, what type of form do you think they would take and how would they be most practical to, en- to enact? For me, reparations can come in, in, in uh, a few different forms. I think that uh, monetary uh, reparations could be a part of it, uh, but also the land use. Uh, a lot of folks don't know, going back to the history of the, the country, uh, the Homestead Act, uh, the federal government gave away land, acres and acres and acres, thousands of acres of land to folks for nothing. And that allowed them to then start to build wealth in this country. Um, that was not a, an option for former slaves and the children of former slaves. So a combination of monetary, a combination of, of land grants, a combination of, I would really like to see um, legacy admissions to our universities for the son and daughters of, of the descendants of, of slaves in uh, this country so that folks can, again, empower themselves with the power of education. So a combination of, of those, those things. And of course, I'm open to, to studying the topic. When it comes to that, I don't want it to just be like this for people to feel like, oh, these people are getting something for nothing. No way. Or this concept that uh, why should I have to pay uh, money for someone and my family, you know, is doing this or this happened. I did, we didn't own slaves or this or that. That's uh, part of the systemic racism to overcome, right? Break that mindset, yeah. change the paradigm. So they don't think that way. Exactly. <laughs> There's no excuses for that either. That's how I feel. You don't have to make excuses for why you feel, you know, your privilege should get in the way of us creating some equality financially in our society. You can put your privilege, check it to the, check it to the front. And let's come up with a practical solution. I'm talking about how people who think that way would talk. Yeah, I just, I just, I, just, I don't understand the concept of if there was a runaway train and it already <laughs> ran over someone, should we not, should we just let the train continue to, to run over people or oh. because it's not fair to the people that were ran over previously. I just, I don't get that, that way of thinking. <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. And you know what? God willing, you start in January, 2023. I'd love to see a commission, a congressional commission on how to address you know, all these s- systemic racism issues we're dealing with. And, and I think the truth will come out eventually. I think we're gonna eventually have to acknowledge. I mean, the other side's not even acknowledging systemic racism. So we're talking yeah, about I, polar I, I, differences, right? In policy and understanding of things. Yeah, and you know, the conversation's already going on. And of course, the, the backlash of the Biden administration granting, setting aside $400 million for uh, black farmers who have historically uh, been mistreated by the USDA and the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, has acknowledged that, yes, we have discriminated against black farmers. Our bad. So this is a remedy to that. And the backlash has been you giving money to black farmers is racist against me. And again, that's the lack of education. Maybe they aren't aware of the historic disenfranchisement of, of, of black farmers, but um, that conversation is going is happening now and, and we're starting to make those remedies. And I don't think that anybody, well, there's probably anybody, but just proposing to study the issue should not automatically cause folks to be ready to pull out their pitchforks and march on the <laughs> Well, I, you know, I say that now, but people already, we already have. January 6th is in our history books and forever will be. So I guess I can't say that anymore. You're right about that. It's, it's, it's horrifying to think about. I, I just, from my vantage point, I just hope that instead of people looking inwards and looking at us versus them, they should just try to have some empathy and think, well, if historically my family was discriminated against, if we could put a person on the moon, our, our government could do whatever they need to do to rectify these wrongs. That's how I look at it. It's common sense. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to me like it's such a earth shattering idea or concept to create you know, reparations and, and to financially help all members of our society. That's not socialism. That's equalizing the situation of 400 years of oppression 
And yeah. that's just how I look at it. <laughs> yeah, and not to mention that every time in this country, uh, not to get on the soapbox, but, that's right. but every time in this country where you have communities in, in history, where you have communities of color that have started to build wealth for themselves, that have gone uh, to prosper, it was met with this backlash of folks who Tulsa. literally burned it to the ground. And then that history was erased. Uh, many people in this country did not even know about Black Wall Street or what happened in, in Greenwood um, until last year. And that was 199 years after the fact that the event happened. Uh, a lot of people don't know that the one and only coup in this country happened in, in 1897 and. uh what was it North Carolina? North Carolina, when they took over the actual city government, and then the KKK, I think, did that with white yeah. supremacists. Yeah, and then burned down the house of all the black residents and looted them and stole all their stuff, and nobody, nobody went to jail. Nobody was, was there was no consequences for those actions. Something's going to change soon, God willing. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Starting with you getting into Congress and enacting some changes and just our societal attitudes. That's what I think needs to be done immediately. But, you know, progress takes time sometimes. And I think we just got to stop letting things just run themselves and run themselves into the ground. I think it's time we make changes. And I, that's why I think it's so important to at least raise awareness of it. When you brought up Tulsa, when I saw that, the Greenwood show on CNN, there was a documentary about it. It, it brought tears to my eyes, just thinking how that could be so disruptive and so disjointed. And yet, be hidden in such a calculated way where it took a hundred years. Yeah. And then in the United States, you had to still, if you didn't have the means to move, you still had to live with these people that literally killed your parents and burned down your house. <laughs> we just asked a lot of folks to, to bear a lot of, a lot of pain and bury it uh, for a long time. And my mom always had the saying that you know, chickens come home to roost. So uh, hopefully we're able to remedy the situation so we can finally be uh, the America that actually builds a more perfect union. We the people means everyone. <laughs> I always say that. Let's talk about the environment. And I want to ask you, what steps would you take within your first term to help America build a green economy? Well, I think at every level of government, there are already policies aimed at promoting uh, clean energy investments and in reducing CO2 emissions uh, for at least the last 10 years. Uh, the task is, is really not so much that we create policy framework, um, just create this new, this new economy, but, but really kind of strengthen the framework that already exists. Uh, and some of those challenges that we have that we can do um, and, and put federal dollars in right on, on day one is uh, retrofitting uh, uh, federal buildings uh, on the federal and state level, creating uh, cap programs. One of the big things that is happening in Congress now that I'm a big proponent of is something like the Thrive Act, uh, which is a proposal that's circulating through Congress, which aims to invest a trillion dollars uh, towards creating uh, an estimated 15 million, uh, 15 million sustainable jobs. Uh, that are union, that are paying a living, rebuilding the nation's physical and social infrastructure. Uh, it, it is proposed to, to cut carbon emissions in half by 2030. Um, and I think it's one of those, those things, those plans that we need to realize, we need to have a bold and holistic approach to address our climate crisis. Um, and I think one of the things that came out of this pandemic is the the economic anxiety um, and mass unemployment that we're looking at right now. If we have a, a plan and funding to put people to work to do these measures that are going to clean up our environment, that are going to put money in people's pockets, to have sustainable jobs that don't just disappear when the pipeline's built, I think it's something that's worth investing in. You know, it's interesting as you talk about this stuff and I'm comparing your words to your opponents, Devin Nunes, and you have very sensible terms that you use. You're not saying that followers of neo-Marxist, socialist, Maoist, or communist ideals is what 
represents environmental lobbyists. Do you have any opinions yeah. on that? Yeah, I, you know, even I, I don't understand it because even rich people have to live on this planet. They they can't just build their own dome and generate. Well, they can fly up and they could go to near Earth orbit and come back and get a lot of publicity. <laughs> right. Twice. Jeff Bezos, he can he can blue origins himself out of Earth, but he can't live there. Um, and I just think that you know one of the things that is very apparent is, uh, especially in this district, is the financial cost of not doing anything. Uh, so Devin Nunes, as you said, he's one of these people that call climate change a hoax. But here we are, we're sitting in a, a where half the country, the west, the western part of the country is in severe drought. And we know that the, the drought costs us money. Agriculture is a big district, a uh, big uh, industry in, in my district. We have studies, we have information, data. The last drought that we had from 2014 to 2018 uh, cost the Central Valley $3 billion in economic activity. That's dollars that's not circulating in our community. That's dollars that aren't uh, providing uh, wages to folks. Uh, there's a real cost to that. In addition to the severe drought, what you have partnered with these high temperatures and drought, you get wildfires. Mm. Our state has seen wildfire season start earlier and last longer and burn hotter mm. in the last 25, 30 years. That, when things burn down, costs us money. So for me, it, it, it's not only these, these issues of, of wanting my kids to have clean air and, and, and clean water to drink, but it is where are we spending our money? I think we need to look at, at, at investments and the return that we're getting on these stuff. These plants are costing us. Doing nothing costs us money. So we need to have something. A trillion dollar environmental plan that puts people, that trains people, that puts them to work to do the stuff that we need to do is an investment. And I think we need to start looking at it itself as, as, as such. And when we do, then we'll see it as an investment in ourselves and our children, and our future. It won't be a, a political fight over uses of terms and, and, and nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think a lot of folks here have just forgotten what it's like when, when America did invest in, in, in us and, and its people. I haven't heard, I don't hear uh, Devin Nunes talk about socialism when it comes to farm subsidies or when it comes to corporate welfare that he's such a proponent of. Um, it's only when we decide to make those investment in regular everyday Americans that it becomes, oh, socialist. We can't do that. You know, you brought up a good point I want to ask you about. Devin Nunes, have you figured out how you're going to beat him? Well, you know, the key to, to beat him, to beating Devin Nunes really is getting people out to vote and not just being, not just saying, I'm not Devin Nunes, so vote for me. Uh, I think we have a platform of getting people excited and showing up to the polls because they're voting for policies that benefit them. And that's how you, that's how you beat Devin Nunes. We have a whole bunch of folks that are, are blue, no matter who, and they're going to turn out. It is those folks that are, that think of themselves as independent that have been disenfranchised or, or that think their votes don't matter to understand that if you want to have a seat at the table, you got to show up. And I think we have a plan going forward uh, policies that are going to bring people to the table and bring them into the voting booth um, to vote for us and to get rid of Devin Nunes. I was looking at the uh, results uh, before the interview. I, it looked like he didn't win by huge margins either. That's like my viewpoint of looking at it. I'm like, oh, you got to get a few extra, extra points here and then you could defeat this guy. I, I think I think it's well worth <laughs> the opportunity and, and the benefits to your district will be like night and day for you yeah, to win. You know, we, we're, we're getting closer every time. Um, this last time we took a little bit of a step back, but we're, we're a lot of folks that have ran in this area previously. And this is kind of an issue for rural Democrats in general is they think they have to run like Republicans. 
and not being running as Republican light is not the way to do that. It's not the way to win. Um, it's taking a stand, taking taking a, a stand on issues and letting folks know where you stand on those issues. And when they're challenged to double down, to say, this is what I stand for. These are my principles. And I'm not compromising my principles to any for anybody or anything. Having the conviction, I think, will sell your message. It will sell itself. If you have the right conviction and you believe in what you're, and I see that in your answers when you're talking to me right now in our interview, you've got that conviction. So I don't think that's going to be a connecting issue at all. I think it's just going to be going through the process of the next year or so to get you there across the line. So I want to ask you, how does our audience support you? What do we need to do to spread the word, donate, whatever? So one of the things that the audience can do is I... I heard this from Emily's list, and I, I love the analogy so much, is that early money is like yeast. It helps the dough rise. So uh, every political campaign, we need donors, especially us, because we don't take any corporate money. Um, we're 100% grassroots, um, and they can go on to our website and check out some of the policies that we have at uh, com. Um, and there's a link to, to donate. There's a link to sign up to volunteer. Um, we're we're going to be blitzing the area um, with phone calls and letters and canvassing. Um, and we're going to knock on as many doors as possible. We're going to call as many folks as possible. Um, and if your uh, audience members want to help out with that, they can sign up on our website to do that as well. Great. I appreciate that. Uh, looking at everything that's happened in your life and what you're doing right now. What do you think was the most influential moment of your life that has led you to be where you are right now running for Congress? Um, you know, I think it's a, an amalgam. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, it's a buildup of, of a lot of experiences growing up the, the way that I did with, with a mom who was, who worked hard and, and, you know, did the mantra of living your life right and, and not getting ahead. I, I could see that the whole mentality of pull yourself up by your bootstraps is not uh, feasible for a lot of folks and that it does take a village and that we should care about the other folks in, in our neighborhoods and in our, our country. Uh, my political philosophy has been that old saying that it is up to to us to plant seeds of trees whose shade will never know. And I think that's one of the things. So my my upbringing. Another thing is is the the day I became a father and responsible for another life and wanting so much for my daughter to live in a world that valued her as a person and that she would have uh, as many pathways uh, open to her as possible that she could be anything that she wanted to be. And when I tell her that, I have the full confidence that the words that I'm saying to her are not a lie is is one of the things that led me to to this decision to run for congress it's beautiful i love that <laughs> looking at your life right now i'll go first with this example so it is about you personally what is one thing about you that you've never shared with anyone before on an interview that you'd be willing to share now like one fact about you i'll go first to make this easier i'm i'm a lawyer i'm a psychic i'm a podcaster people know that about me i'm a world war ii nerd I love to watch World War II documentaries. I've been watching them since I'm like, I'm 45. I've been watching them since I'm a little kid. I, I watch them constantly and it's just the way it is. And I feel like for me, at least on a spiritual level, my grandfather fought in World War II. And I always felt that kind of intrigue and interest to see what he did. And he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And that just kind of cultivated me into being this World War II nerd. And so I, I throw myself out there with that one. But I want to ask you, what, what fact about you that no one knows about would you be willing to share that you've never shared before? Uh, at the risk of, of sounding like a crazy person, I absolutely am the biggest fan of history. Before I decided to get my degree in political science, I originally 
wanted to be a history teacher. And my favorite part of of American history is the revolution. So (laughs) I would dress up in these, I had this like blue uh, jacket that I would like fold the sides over and make my own tri-corner hats. (laughs) And I would pull up my high white socks over my pants to be a, and I, you know, put the hand in the shirt like they do in the the pictures, Uh, because I really, if I had a time machine, I would totally go back in time to the American Revolution and say, hey, George, listen, here's a couple battles that you should probably avoid. And this is, (laughs) yeah. And in exchange, maybe we free some slaves. (laughs) I totally have that mentality. Um, As a, as a big history, history, American revolution buff, I would cosplay as George Washington. I love that. I mean, you you gotta, you you know, that's, that's great. That's great. I appreciate you you sharing your candidness on that. Um, Looking at COVID and everything that it, the pandemic did, what do you think for you personally was one of the most important learning lessons that you learned during COVID 19's pandemic affecting California, your district, the country? One of the things I learned through this pandemic, and it's it's a, a lesson that I, I hope we learn from, we all learn from, is that we are our brother's keeper. And that although I may not be at risk for, for COVID. Uh, the important, it was important for, for me to wear a mask and my wife to go out and wear a mask. I may not have been necessarily scared of contracting COVID myself, but spreading COVID to someone who was vulnerable. That was something that I cared about. And so I, I think it's a lesson that a lot of f- folks have learned. There's still some that are hard headed that uh, still are, are in need of that lesson. But I hope that we, we, we do learn that, you know, we are in this together and that we, in order for us to survive as a country, we got to start looking at ourselves as Americans again. And I hear it all the time with, with COVID. I, I hear it all the time with like um, on, on conservative news networks with um, shootings in Chicago. They always talk about, oh, these black uh, black people are killing each other in Chicago. No, that's a group of Americans that are killing themselves in Chicago, killing each other in Chicago. We should all just be thinking of ourselves as Americans and care about our neighbors. That's what I've learned from this pandemic. And I hope that's the lesson that we continue to learn as we go forward. Absolutely. Spirituality. Since this show is part of its theme is spirituality, I just want to ask you, what does spirituality mean to you? And how has spirituality motivated you to run for Congress? Spirituality is something that it, it, I would say I was a, a spiritual person. My like religious background is, is I grew up in a Baptist uh, church. Um, I now go to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Fresno. Um, and, and I would consider myself a, a Christian UU. And, and one of the things I, I love about Unitarian Universalism is that I'm not holding to any set of dogma or doctrine, and that spirituality to me is that freedom of thought that I can go where my spirit leads. So I, I would consider myself a Christian UU in the sense that I... I um, ascribe to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And one of the, his major, major principles is the belief of being my brother's keeper in you, you, we have seven principles. Um, and one of those is the inherent worth of dignity, inherent worth and, uh, and dignity of every person. Um, that's something that I've always ascribed to uh, justice, equality, and compassion in human relations. Um, is another one, but respect for the interdependent web of all existence and justice for all is another tenet that I have. So I've always thought that we are all um, interconnected and that spirituality uh, really opens, opens me up to care about uh, people beside myself, besides just my family. Um, 
And so that's where my spirituality guides me. Uh, you know what? That's exactly why we need you in Congress. Because <laughs> you have the empathy and the understanding to look at the bigger picture and not just be consumed by the minimal aspect of yourself. And that's where we need someone like you the most <laughs> to be in government, making policies and laws that help everybody, not small slivers of the population based on corrupt and greed, corruption and greed. In my yeah, opinion, that's, you know, that's, that's uh, that really that corruption and greed is, is one of the things that, you know, another big, big uh, part of our plan here is, is confronting the student loan uh, debt crisis. And absolutely. Not sure if you were going to ask a question about it. I, I, you know what? Let's talk about the student debt crisis and how you would handle it as an elected representative for your district in January of 2023. Well, the first thing I think we, we got to do is understand the problem and the scale of the problem. And because we've divested so much from community colleges and public education uh, uh, institutions in the last 10 to 20 years, those institutions have turned around and raised fees. Um, the National Center for Education Statistics, I believe in 1985, had the average cost of a year, an academic year in 1985 at a public university was $1,500. Uh, that cost today is like to around $28,000. Uh, so the current models that we have forces people into debt. And I think it's important to understand that student loan debt is not like other types of debt. It's not like credit card debt where you go through a, a bankruptcy process where that debt uh, can be wiped away. Student loan debt is with you forever. It is literally an anchor. Uh, people are not able to buy houses. They're not able to build wealth. They're not able to, to start businesses. Some of them because of the debt are forced to quit school before they finish just building the cycle. So I believe that uh, it's not just one thing, but a combination of things, of items packaged together um, that will help alleviate the student debt crisis. So um, bringing relief to millions of families that are currently dealing with the anchor of student loan debt, um, but also enact policies to provide increased funding um, to minimize the debt that future students will have to occur. So it's not enough to just cancel the people that cancel the debt for people that have problems that have the student loan debt. What are we going to do about people that are, you know, in the future that are going to need to go to school that are going to have debt? Um, when it comes to to increase funding, you know, I was a kid um, that qualified for for Pell grants, so Pell grants made up a large part of my ability to go to college. And originally, Pell grants, when they were enacted, made it made up 80% of college costs wow. to do with just Pell Grants. Today, that is 28% according to um, the Institute of College Access and Success. It's a big shift. Um, so we should cancel college debt for existing holders, make public universities and colleges tuition-free, and increase our funding to Pell Grants as a way to do to to offset that cost, and by doing that, that student debt cancellation alone, um, in terms of GDP, is going to increase our economic output. But the cost of doing debt cancellation is one thing that I hear all the time about: is that we can't do that because of the cost. We can't do that because of the cost. It is the same size and net dollar cost as the tax giveaway to the rich that Trump and Republicans without bipartisan support uh, did in 2017. That, I think it's look at the return and investment on that. We didn't get, oh, it's gonna pay for itself. It's gonna do all this. None of that has come to fruition. Here we are almost five years later. And now the wealthy people's tax cut is permanent, but ours expired. I'll borrow their own words. We got to stop the steal. Yeah, please. <laughs> except, except the other kind of steal, the real steal, which is, you know, improve and equal. We got to we got to neutralize all that. Do you do you suggest um, discharging, being able to discharge the loan debts for certain students who are really um, overwhelmed if they could use bankruptcy as a as an alternative to reform the bankruptcy code as a, as a I, possibility? I, I, I think that the federal government should 
should take the rap for should buy up the debt existing debt for people that don't have federal subsidized loans and then forgive the ones that do and i love that <laughs> i think that's a great idea it's a great idea for our future yeah i think they if wall street can get a bailout i think it's time for main street to get a bailout <laughs> exactly exactly um, so that's that's what i would i would love to see but it, again it's got to be in connection we got to do something for the future people, uh, for the people in the future to go to school and not come out with sixty, seventy, hundred thousand dollars in debt. Do you think uh, it will be hard to take those kind of policies and actually put them into action? Let's say the Democrats keep the House, keep the Senate, Biden stays in office. We see how hard and difficult it is without cooperation from ten Republicans in the Senate to enact legislation. Do you think? these kind of changes could be done without those issues? Or do you think it's going to be a larger struggle within Congress? So here, here's what I, what I, th- I think about uh, what's going on in, in Congress now. And in, in relation to these, these programs, um, yes, it would be difficult to get, to get uh, through the Senate if, if the makeup stays the way that it is. But we're finding it difficult to do the most simplest of bills because of the Senate. Um, so a getting rid of the filibuster and, or reforming the filibuster to what it should was originally purposed as would be one thing. Uh, I'm of the mind that the filibuster is unconstitutional anyway, because the constitution it put forth a simple majority to enact legislation, but that's getting into the weeds. Um, I don't come. I come from a, a standpoint. I've watched um, uh, Obama give away the farm to try to get Republican votes. I, I'm watching Joe Biden whittle down his bills to try to get Republican votes. I'm not coming out of negotiation saying this is what I want, but I'm willing to start in the middle. Yeah, that's not where I come from. This is I, I, if I'm going into negotiation. This is what I want. What are you going to give me? It's, it's good to have that kind of a position because then you make the other side have to concede to come across the table to beat. We got to have, we got to come from a point of this is where I got elected office to represent folks and this is what they want. Now let's work to get there. If it ends up being, I'm very pragmatic. If we do incremental steps um, that show progress and we can see the, the progress is being made and the, the light at the end of the tunnel on some of these things, great. But I'm not coming in with a, hey, this is what I would, this would be great if this is, if this, all these things happen. But um, I know it's not going to happen. <laughs> Instead, you know, it's not where I'm at. We're running low on time. And uh, I do want to ask you one last question. I think this has some consequence for our audience. What would you say to convince one of your constituents who's previously voted for Donald Trump? but who feels anxious about the future and about Devin Nunes. What would you say to that person to get them to unseat Devin Nunes and vote for you to replace him? It's a simple conversation of saying you should value yourself. Value yourself. Look at yourself of being worthy of investment in. Your kids are worthy of investment in. And, and that we all know the, the, the outcome, the outlook is not the brightest right now, but it can be. It can be if folks like you and I are willing to stand up to corporate greed, if we're willing to say we are going to take back our country, but not from each other. We're going to take back our country from these corporations who have pitted us against each other because it works out well for them and their bottom line. People are recognizing that. One of the things, key parts that people forget about Donald Trump is he ran as a populist in 2016. He was, he told folks, yeah, the game is fixed. It's tilted towards people like me, but I'm going to fix it for you. The first part of that was true. The game is fixed. People like me aren't supposed to be running for Congress. Thank God that you are. (laughs) And, And that regular folks, we need to get end of the game and take back our country, not from each other again, but from these powers that want to divide us. I love that. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your viewpoints today. 
and and working with my audience and explaining these complex issues because a lot of the stuff that comes on my show usually we talk about social justice stuff of course and we talk about spiritual stuff i have a lot of great authors that come on but having someone who's actually in the trenches somebody who's actually making it their purpose to sacrifice your life right now to do these things oh and gosh don't tell my wife it, she was it's so- a huge sacrifice right i mean it's yeah, it, it, like i love our life now are you sure you want to do this because i mean like, it's such not? a sacrifice but you know what it's like, if you don't make that sacrifice, who's going to? There's people that will, but we need people that are going to win. We need people that can message, right? People that can connect, that can resonate. And I think you have all that. And I think that that's what makes you a strong candidate against them and Nunes. We need more of you. We got to clone you. If I got to find a head already, it would just, it just started to blow Right? It, it, because you represent the next generation. You're a millennial. So you represent the future of our country, but you're also taking stock of everything. And your perspective is what I appreciate find refreshing. That's why I wanted to reach out to you and invite you on the show. I looked at your information. I was like, man, you resonate with me. I like your story. I like your information. I come from a single parent family. You know, um, your, your message resonates. And I believe my audience will see this the same way. And so that's why I, I just really deeply appreciate you coming on and having the courage to share this information with my audience. Because my show is not a political show, you know? But guess what? My, 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 my audience votes. <laughs> so I think we all find out that, you know, right. Exactly. 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 So, and, and you know what, it's like, it's like you said, we've got to get everyone involved and, and, and motivated. And I feel like that's what I think your candidacy represents is that opportunity to get people who don't normally vote to get to the polls, to vote, to galvanize and change the system and start fixing things. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I just want to thank Lauren for coming on the show today and sharing his message with us and his passion for running for the 22nd Congressional District in California to unseat Devin Nunes. It's uh, for the county, the counties of Fresno and Tulare counties. Ever since George Floyd last year was murdered and our society has gone through so many changes and so many pivotal moments that have happened one after the other between COVID and systemic racism coming to, to the forefront and all these other issues, it makes me think to myself, at what point is the insanity going to change? At what point are we going to bring some common sense solutions to our problems and help resolve things? And I think a big part of that is understanding the relationship to the mantra, knowledge is power. Because if you know your power and you know what you can do with the knowledge that you gain through an educational aspect of things and you're informed and you care and you have passion, you can make a difference. To me, Lauren represents that kind of person, someone with passion, some, someone with fire in their belly, someone whose mother toiled, struggled, worked within the system yet died prematurely because the system wasn't there for her to give her the medical support and and the economic support that she needed. And in my opinion, Lauren is just like any of us in our world where we see something that needs to be fixed. You could drive past it. You could ignore it. You could focus on, you know, your, your life, but it's when you look at the bigger picture and you have the empathy to look for others. That's what I respect about Lauren's candidacy. And I think If anybody from this audience hears this episode today, I want you to check out Lauren's website, www.laurenhubbard.com. I want you to look at his information. I want you to look critically at the issues. And not just in California, across the country. Look at your candidates. Look at what they represent. Look what they stand for. Do you align with what they represent and what they espouse? When I did research today for this episode, I looked to look up Devin Nunez's background. When I looked at the stuff that he's looking, that he's supported over the years, and he's been in there for a while, I was horrified. I mean, opposing the Iran deal against immigration, against sensible healthcare, against the environment, against energy. I don't know where to, where to end and where, where, where good sensibility begins. But the one thing I'm going to say is I pray that Lauren wins, that Devin Nunez loses, and that we can change things from the start. We can change our government and we will do so starting with Lauren getting elected. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook. And don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind. Embrace your paradigms and know that the universe is always yours to explore. 
With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that this chair? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big home touchdown. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.